Welcome back to another episode of the Defend and Confirm podcast. I'm Russell. I'm Sean. And uh, we're going to be wrapping up our series on what we've kind of broadly called multiplying movements. Church multiplying movements. Yeah. Multiplying methodology. Uh, this is a paradigm in modern evangelical missions. And if you're just stumbling onto this series now, do yourself a favor mm-hmm. and go back and listen to the ones prior to this first. Yeah. Because this one's not going to make a lot of sense. Right. I mean, you can try it the other way around, but yeah. take our word but for it. But you traditionally don't read a book starting on the last page. Yeah. yeah. So uh, most recently, we've critiqued these multiplying paradigms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've offered our criti- criticisms of some of their major characteristics. Yeah. Uh, we, d- we basically tore them down. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do now is build up a positive biblical view for how Christians should missions. Yeah, we don't want to, you know, offer critiques without giving solutions. That's right. And uh, with us right now, yeah. we actually have a special guest who's going to help us do that. The solution himself? Yes. Nah, probably not. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> on the line, we have Brooks Buser. And Brooks, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks, brothers. Uh, I've appreciated <laughs> the podcast. Uh, I am back in the United States. I run an organization called Radius International. Uh, We train missionaries who are planting churches among unreached people groups. So my wife and I, uh, for 13 years, lived and worked overseas among an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea. Mm. Uh, We moved in, learned the language, uh, learned the culture, and then started from the book of Genesis and taught all the way through uh, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then uh, stayed another eight years to see a strong church planted. I was in charge of translating uh, all of the Pauline epistles and the Gospels, except for Mark and most of the Pentateuch. And so it took us 13 years to see that completed, but by God's wow. grace, it was. Wow. And there's a strong church planted there. Uh, to this day, I'm going to go back and visit them in another eight weeks here. So looking forward to that. But uh, yeah, back in the United States now, uh, working and yeah, training, kind of taking the lessons that we gathered those 13 years uh, into new uh, young people who are looking to take the gospel where it's never been before. Wow. Praise God. Yeah. So uh, you, yeah. you just mentioned that you do training of missionaries with, with Radius. Could you describe a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah, students come in. Um, the program is located down in Mexico. So I'm in San Diego right now as I talk to you guys. Uh, but down in Mexico, we find that it's easier and better to train cross-cultural uh, missionary in a cross-cultural setting. So mm. taking North Americans out of an English-speaking environment, putting them in an environment where they're in the obvious minority, uh, stretching their legs as far as what it's like to live and to operate in a foreign culture, teaching them how to learn a language, how to make friends, and then they apply that in context. And then going through the the nuts and bolts of church planting, teaching them what it's like uh, to plant a church in a cross-cultural setting, uh, going, taking a deep dive into theology of suffering, uh, what it will take to actually see an existing worldview displaced rather than added onto and mm. bringing in the biblical worldview. That's a, that's a key factor that I think a sometimes gets overlooked. But Hmm. yeah, the nine-month program, it tends to shape people pretty well. And then as they come out, they have a very clear goal. Uh, Most of them realize this is going to take 15, 20, 30 years of their life if they're going to do this and see a church that's actually going to be strong and outlive all of us. So that's kind of the real brief overview of the program. And one of the reasons that we've invited you here is, is because as an instructor of potential missionaries, you've thought a great deal about these other methods and paradigms that are really popular in the evangelical world. Yeah, no, we've talked through, uh, this was probably one of the most surprising things was coming back from the field and realizing what was kind of the dominant church planning methodologies uh, was not what we had practiced and what so many of our friends and other missionaries overseas were practicing. It was it was something fairly new, but we didn't realize how deeply rooted it was. And so, yeah, Radius isn't set up to necessarily teach against those, but rather to teach, hey, this is what it will take to actually see a church planted that's going to stay. I think that's the that's the metric we're all hoping and praying for. 
will churches last? Whatever is planted, will it be something that we can point to in five, 10, 50 years and say, yeah, this is this is something that's lasting. And so that that was kind of a shock to us. So it is something that we'll talk on regularly and we have no dog in the fight. We don't we're not an age or we're not uh, sending it or a training school for a particular agency or a denomination. But we we will speak on some of these things and it, it hasn't made us incredibly popular, but it has been something that our, our students have benefited from. Yeah. Well, popularity is a fickle mistress. Um, brother, you uh, you, you know, we appreciate the fact that you, you cannot tackle every bad philosophy of missions that exists out there in this big, crazy world. Uh, but what you can do is, is, is give a biblical vision for what missions should be, how it should be conducted according to the wisdom of the gospel. And, and that will kind of cover all the bases, right? Just a good, healthy vision will uh, eradicate all of the bad visions. Uh, but, but speaking of the bad vision of, of missions, um, as we have been picking apart church planning movements, multiplying movements, the 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 main feedback that we're getting from people who are either practicing uh, multiplying movement methodologies or people who are sympathetic to multiplying movement methodologies is that uh, we're being too severe in a number of different ways. We're either being too severe about how these methodologies are being implemented. Oh, people don't actually do all of that stuff. Or uh, we're being too severe in our description of, of how widespread these methodologies are being implemented. You know, yeah, that's happening in some places, and some Baptists do that, but it's not as far spread and as far reaching as you guys say it is. Um, and, and we've pushed back against that. You know, for every one of those emails or Facebook messages that we get that says that we're overreacting, we get two more from people on the field that say, no, this is really bad. And, uh, I've been trained by this and you guys are spot on. Keep and going. And it's everywhere. And it's everywhere. So, uh, but we would just like to invite you to speak to that. I mean, uh, you've listened to all of these episodes, all the episodes that we've done so far. Uh, honest assessment right here in front of God and everybody. Do, do you think we've been too severe in our assessment of these things? Uh, no, I don't. I, I just, what we've seen at radius. And again, because we're a training school, we're not a sending agency, the sending agencies come down to recruit. And so we get to see every flavor of the rainbow and what initially now they know us fairly kind of tailored their messages to how they come down and recruit our students. But Initially, you got to see their best pitch and their best pitch overwhelmingly. I mean, this is from the leading organizations out there, not just the IMB, not just Frontiers, not just Pioneers, uh, but the, the other ones as well was this rapid multiplication stuff because it drew so many people in. It excited young people. It excited their base. So to say that it's widespread, I think, is an understatement. It is the head and shoulders dominant methodology that is out there today, as far as we've seen. And we've seen nearly every agency come down trying to recruit our students. But what we do here every time, and I'm sure you guys have heard this as well, is, well, we modify. We modify it. And the, the key question is, okay, what do you modify and to what extent? And mm -hmm. that, that's what we, we try and drill down. And the staff don't even ask these questions. The students, after they've been with us for three months, know the right questions to ask. And the two major questions are, what's your definition of the gospel and what's your definition of a local church? If Amen. you get those two things right, you get 90% of the issues right in missions. But you get those things slightly wrong, slightly wrong on this side of the ocean is magnitudes of error on the other side. And so yeah. those two key questions, and you want to hear them really dive into the details, what they mean by the gospel and the local church, because that the devil is in the details. I was just interviewing Kevin DeYoung on this, and everybody says the same terms. That's the thing that is probably one of the most challenging thing in movement methodologies is people are using the same terms, but they don't mean the same thing. And so to dive into what those things mean, the gospel and the church, yeah, let's just hit on a couple of things you said there. One, the shared vocabulary. Whether you're talking with uh, liberal Christians who deny inerrancy, or you're talking about the prosperity gospel, if you're talking about critical theory, if you're talking about multiplying movements, all aberrations 
uh, of of good theology have the same trait in common is that they use words, but yep. it's not the way that the Bible uses that word. And so we always have to come back. We're not playing semantics games. We just want to make sure that when you say church and I say church, we mean the same thing. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you said, brother, that is very important is the order of magnitude that these errors uh, increase when they go overseas. You know, Russell and I were in the army and we had to do land nav training when we were in the military. And one of the things that you learn about using a compass is that if you are even one degree off as you begin to, mm. to, to move north, by the time you've taken a thousand steps, you're now several degrees off. And if you take 10,000 steps, now you're, you know, you're just, you, it, it gets worse the further you go. And that's absolutely true as you try to implement uh, these really unhealthy mission strategies. If, if, if you learn them here in the classroom and it, they seem fine and then you go and try to implement them on the mission field, it's, it's going to get way worse. Yep. Um, mm. Anything you want to add to that? Uh, no. So what I'd like to do now, Brooks, is uh, just look at some of the characteristics that we've used to sort of broadly describe movement methodologies. We've critiqued these at length, but we'd like you then to counter these points uh, to give us the biblical vision for what missionaries should consider when they are going on missions. So the first one is that all multiplying movements, pick your flavor, whatever it is, they, they believe that these movements exist. These are large-scale conversions among a particular people group. Uh, they, they think these are spiritually genuine and that they can be reverse-engineered. Uh, and we went into the history of this idea and, and looked at the revivalism that this comes from. Uh, would you give us just the biblical alternative to the way we should look at conversion, particularly large-scale revival or conversion among people? Yeah, I think the smallest nugget of that starts off with the idea that only the Spirit of God brings about true conversion. This isn't a man-wrought event on an individual basis or on a mass basis. This is something that is only brought about by the Spirit of God. And so with that in mind, I think one of the best books on this is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. And just understanding that anyone who gets saved is the grace of God. Any, everyone for where they stand uh, deserves eternal damnation. But anyone saved by God, that's a gift. That's a grace of God. And so you start with that premise and you move into the large scale movements and you look and a lot of the movement practitioners will speak of Pentecost and they'll speak mm -hmm. of some of the events that surround the book of Acts. And you just have to look at the history of these things all the way back uh, through the first Great Awakening and then the second Great Awakening. And I was so glad you guys uh, just plugged revival and revivalism and the difference between those two and overseas, especially you're very careful or you need to be very careful because there's an app, there's an appetite, so to speak, for things happening on a mass level. It right, tends right. to sound better to your supporters back in the States. It's something that you can put your finger on. And so man is always eager and energetic to see things done. That's just the way that we are, especially from the West. But to be very careful when we start to see things happening on a mass level. When I would do church planning consulting, when we would go into a a village or a people group and we had heard that everyone had gotten saved that was a yeah. yellow flag for us yeah. that was a huge yellow mm -hmm. flag because when everyone gets saved you have to you have to ask the big massive question what did they understand right what did stand to where everybody got saved it's the places that 5 10 20 out of a thousand people those guys got saved the numbers are more along that or maybe a hundred sometimes 150 sometimes 200 that you start to go okay some, some of them got it, but the bulk of them reject it more often than not. And the ones that didn't, man, let's ask the hard questions. If everybody got saved in the entire people group, then let's really ask the hard questions. What did they understand? Because that's a yellow flag. That's just a yellow flag anywhere you go. It's not, it's not the end. You don't want to say this is wrong, but you want to say, okay, there's some caution here. We should be careful when we see something happening on a mass scale. That's not normal. That's an evidence that God is working if it's true. If yeah. it's not true, that's an evidence that man has done something here to engineer this. That's a very dangerous place to be in. And so you're, th this is important, Brooks, because you're not saying that large-scale conversion of the type that's being described here isn't possible. You're not saying no. that the Spirit of God no. never does that. 
you're saying yeah. that we need to be able to discern between genuine movements of revival and manufactured movements of uh, mass, you know, psychological manipulation. Right. Yeah, no, I, completely. And there were two places where I was at because I was doing consulting for the field of Papua New Guinea, a little bit for Indonesia, Thailand and some other places. And there were two places that we genuinely felt, my goodness, this is just a movement of God. The mm -hmm. nearly the entire people group we felt like got saved. But the slowness, the carefulness that the missionaries exhibited going into that and after that. Okay, now we've got all of these young baby believers growing them up. And I think that's the thing that scares me maybe most about movement methodologies is the rapidity. Okay, now let's repeat this. That was not the case in the two places that we saw where we saw the entire people group get saved is what, what the initial thing coming out was. And sure enough, we got in there. But that, that carefulness, okay, let's make sure, let's not baptize too quickly, let's not lay hands on too quickly, let's be sure and let's keep teaching past the point of the death, burial, and resurrection and see how they respond as we move forward in that. Because I think it was Spurgeon that some one of his uh, associates, I was reading this in a book by Ian Murray, and one of them came up to him after he gave a message and like 300 people got saved and uh, they said they said to Spurgeon, "Isn't that great?" And he'll say, and he said, "We'll see, we'll see." Yeah. And I think that, that's the attitude: is, we'll yeah. see. Let's not let's not count our chickens before they've hatched. Let's Spurgeon would say, "Man, I loathe this counting of unhatched chickens because the fruit of it in the end will be bitter." Yeah. It's just amen. Well, brother, two things on that. Number one, uh, if if you're listening to this or, or watching, and and you feel like, well, what about the Book of Acts? Well, let's just be clear that mass conversions is not even the norm in the book of Acts, right? The, the norm in the book of Acts is rejection, it's persecution, it's uh, <laughs> violent rejection of the gospel. But even when there are conversions, uh, the, the two, three, five thousand is, is not the norm. Uh, it, it's actually a kind of one-off situation that you see there. So even biblically, we shouldn't expect that to be the case. If it wasn't the case for the apostles, you know, at, after Pentecost, then it's probably not going to be the norm for us today. And then the, the second thing you said there, uh, Brooks, that I feel like is, is really important to touch on is that you said that one of the reasons why people do this is because they feel like it looks good for the people back at home. And, uh, you know, I felt that pull when I was on the mission field. You know, what are the people who are going to be sending me money? What are they going to be thinking about what we're doing? And, brother, I think you would agree with me when, when, uh, when I say that whatever that impulse is, whatever nerve that fires that causes you to think that way, if you want to be faithful, you have to kill that nerve, right? Uh, I, I'm not saying don't be accountable to your local church and to whoever is overseeing you on the mission field, but, but I am saying, and I think you would say, uh, you just have to go there and be faithful and, and honestly not give a rip about what people back in the States will think about what kind of fruit you're producing. Because if you do, if you take that into major consideration, uh, it will lead you to, to compromise uh, your ministry in a number of different ways. Amen. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the major issues that's gotten us into the situation with movement methodology. Guys who show these types of results end up becoming area leaders, then they become regional leaders, they get platformed more, and those ideas are given a platform to spread. And so if you can show these types of results, you just automatically, in the missions world, move up the ladder, so to speak, and then those guys end up propagating those methodologies further and further. And so you see guys that were discipled under some of these guys like Garrison, like the Watsons, like the Truesdales, those disciples end up becoming the leaders within the organization. And so it, it's one of those things, if you want to move ahead, the results really help in moving forward in the mission world. Yeah. Which really is, I mean, that mindset goes back to the, the first statement we made, which is that there is something about what these guys are doing that is producing the results. Yeah. Something different that they're doing that the average faithful Christian must not be doing. Yeah, that's that, right. That mechanical view of how people are saved. So. Nobody goes to the mission, mission field, spends 10 years, has five converts and comes back and becomes a leader of, <laughs> of you know, uh, pioneers or something. The second characteristic of these multiplying movements that uh, 
we think is really, really bad is, is an emphasis on speed, right? It's, it's the, this idea that if disciples are not being multiplied in a rapid fashion, then something is wrong. You, you've got the mechanics, you know, uh, messed up. You have to go in and figure out why this isn't happening, even to the point where you see clear rejection of, uh, scriptural principles, right? So Paul says, you know, don't make a man an elder if he's a recent convert. And then you have mm. guys who are writing their methodology handbooks that say, ah, don't worry about it, you know? If he's not drunk and beating his wife, make him the pastor and then move on to the next town, right? Um, so there's this emphasis on speed that we think is really dangerous. Can, can you speak to that and offer us a, a better way forward? Yeah, I think... I heard one time uh, Paul Washer say, it's a miracle of God if a church is produced in less than 10 years. It's just a, an incredible miracle. Mm. I, I would second that tremendously. To produce converts, that's a different animal. To disciple them into maturity and to see them gathered into a local church, man, that that's a task. I mean, mm. birthing babies is fairly, I don't want to say easy, it's still a work of God, but to get them to the point to where they're mature, though, and they're yeah. gathered into a local church. I remember when we had baby believers, it took us four and a half months each, and we were teaching five days a week, uh, three hours a day, and getting them through the, gen the Old Testament narrative all the way through to the New Testament. So when we presented the gospel, we had a handful of believers, maybe 40 or 50 is what we estimated at that point, and we started gathering them together. And it took us eight years from that point to the point where they were a strong New Testament church. They were able to defend themselves, they were able to teach them, propagate themselves. And that that during that time, we were getting a little bit of blowback from really well-intentioned people, people right. who love the Lord Jesus that it seems like it's maybe a little bit overkill, a little bit too heavy, a little bit too long. And especially the laying on of hands of elders, First uh, Timothy 3, Titus 1 type elders, that's the longest process. I think that's right. one of the things in methodologies that gets shortcut so often because it is so lengthy to not go too quickly because it's going to be the death of the church long term if you go too quickly in that stage. And so... Yeah, it took us a while. Uh, it was one of those things where it was just the teaching of the Word of God over and over. You put your absolute confidence in the ordinary means of grace, that if we teach, we disciple, we pray, we teach, we disciple, we pray, and we keep seeing these babies take three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes four steps forward and one step back. But mm -hmm. it's a lengthy process, and that's antithetical. I don't want to throw it all in the movement methodology, guys. I think it's the stew in which we live in North America, where fast and quick is always preferred over slow and patient. That's just always what we're going to knee jerk towards, especially in this day and age. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I love the imagery you use of, of giving birth versus raising a child. You know, Brooks, I'm guessing you're a dad. We're parents. And, you know, we don't, uh, our wives don't give birth to our children. You know, we give them six or seven months to uh, adjust to being out of the womb and then throw them out of the house and, and assume that they can handle the big, bad world. It, it takes a, a long time, you know, nearly two decades of, of love, nurturing, cultivation before we feel like they're ready to, to be out on their own. And uh, I, I imagine that some people would hear what we're saying right now and they would push back and they would say, but look at the Apostle Paul. You know, he, he went on these journeys where he would plan a church and then he would leave and he would go to another church. But you also have the book of Titus, and as the book of Titus opens up, Paul says, you know, this is why I left you in Crete, you know, uh, so that you could put the churches in order, so that you could appoint elders and deacons and make sure that these churches are doing well. So even though Paul, in, in a unique way as an apostle, did move with um, some rapidity from church to church, city to city, he was also very much concerned so concerned that he would leave guys who were like his right hand. He would uh, he would leave them behind to make sure that these churches were well taken care of, put in order, and that they were able to stand on their own two feet. Yeah, by analogy, you know, Paul having so many Jewish converts as part of these older, as part of these you know first churches, it, it reminds me a lot of converting nominal Christians to the true faith here. Mm -hmm. It's a very mm -hmm. different scenario than walking into an animistic tribe. Yeah. And building up these worldview foundations, which, as you point out, Brooks, can take uh, decades. Yeah. 
But let's move on. Yeah. So the next thing we want to address is, I think, closely related to this emphasis on rapidity as a as a cardinal virtue of missions, and that's something that we've described as a task priority view of the return of Christ. Uh, I've run into this a lot in talking with brothers, uh, for some reason in particular, who are involved in T for T in four fields, and that's the idea that uh, the Great Commission is a completable task. You know, I think this goes all the way back to Ralph Winters and, and old school missionaries who, who started to view uh, the declaration of Christ that you're going to spread this gospel throughout all, all the nations to the ends of the earth yeah. and then the end will come yeah. as a accomplishable task that we would bring about through our efforts. Yeah. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, the I think you're right. I think a lot of that comes back to the misunderstanding of that passage in Matthew 14 and ushering in the end of yeah the age, and that that again points to the idea that this is somehow uh, it's tied to our efforts, our energies. Finney uh, Charles Finney had a famous statement: "More effort, more revival," and I think it points to that mm-hmm. whole mindset. One of the things I I think would be good just to point out in this is that all of these brothers who I've met at Radius, and I I know you guys have met quite a few of them, I have always been encouraged by their motives. Their heart and their motives are good. They care about the ends of the earth. There's a reason why they talk about birth rates and Christianity isn't keeping pace with how fast people are being born and we're going to lose the war in the long term. And their, Their motives are good, but out of the motives spring methodologies spring some of these things that that quite honestly are going to do more damage to the cause of Christ long term because what has to be undone when you go too fast is much more brutal than the original to speak to someone who doesn't who hasn't thought about these things or hasn't had an exposure to it or doesn't think they're a Christian that's much easier than someone who thinks they're a believer and that, that, again, coming back to this idea that if we go quickly, we've got to get everybody saved, we've got to hurry from place to place, that's putting a lot of emphasis on ourselves. That's putting a lot of emphasis on us. And you know what? The king will use who he will use, and he will move in ways nobody 100 years ago would have thought where South Korea is at today or where the global south in some ways. I get nervous when people talk about the global south because right. there's, a, there's a lot of things in the global south that is – is not it's not true christianity it's right. syncretism yeah but to see some of the ways that god has moved in some of these countries and some of these locations nobody would have thought about that mm. they would not guess it they couldn't have predicted it but god will move when he chooses to move in the manner he chooses to move and it's usually different than the way that we've schemed or the way that we've thought these things through and so again just coming back to that man-centered view of how we get there that that's a very dangerous side to this Well, something you said right at the start of this interview that I think is worth repeating is that your goal, your aim is to plant churches that will endure. And this, this, you know, the Great Commission is not uh, two dimensional. It's not a, it's not a map where we march outward. And as soon as we reach the edge of that map, Christ returns. It is also uh, generational. And so Mm. we need to plant churches that are going to be able to carry the gospel, not just through countries, but through generations until that time that he does return. Well, that's exactly what Paul says to Timothy, right? Take this and pass it on to other faithful men who can then pass it on to other faithful men. Yeah. Yeah. So let's be clear. uh, Finish the mission is not a good slogan for for doing the uh, Great Commission. Amen. Uh, Next, we have an emphasis on cultural neutrality. So it's this idea that um, Western missionaries, when we go to the mission field, we're just bringing our Western conceptions of of ecclesiology, of evangelism, and we're just dumping that all over the mission field. Of the gospel, yeah. And uh, and really, we just need to recognize that... uh, you know, there are a lot of neutral cultural things that uh, we should learn to accommodate, and we should not try to impose our very non-neutral neutral cultural things on uh, on the peoples and the places that we go to. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think, again, there's this idea that our Westernness has overcome us and blinded us so much that we can't even see the gospel correctly. And I, I, I just, I think that's, a very short-sighted, unbiblical view in many ways. When we moved into Yembe Yembe, 
uh, most of the women were dying in childbirth because they were anemic. And what they believed was if their husbands fed them meat, anything that they'd killed, uh, they would lose their hunting powers. And so when the gospel came and people started understanding, okay, this is what our ancestor spirits told us. This is what the God of this book tells us. No, no, no. I'm going on the path of this, the God of the book. And their wives started becoming healthier. And that within three years, there was a marked contrast to how the women of believers, how these wives started living through these things. Because again, the biblical worldview, it pushes other worldviews out. If it doesn't, you don't have Christianity. You have syncretism. And to go for this idea, you got Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 who says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. We we go after ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We're in a battle against ideas and concepts, and we make war against those ideas. And so these are not neutral things. Paul never saw them as neutral. Mm-hmm. He saw them as antagonists to the gospel, as things that are set up against. And we're called to make war on these. And so to make war on these ideas, on these other gods, little G gods that are out there. And that was the whole concept that we were going after when we were teaching Genesis to Jesus was, here's what your ancestors taught you. Here's what your gods tell Mm. you. Here's the God of this. Choose one of them. But they both cannot be true. Both things cannot be true at the same time. And man, one of the sweetest things, our guys don't have a word for savior. They call him the bridge man, the one who took us from Satan's side to God's side, who wow, carried us wow. across the bridge. And now they say when they're bap- when they give uh, their baptism testimonials, they have to talk about how the bridge man took them from Satan's side to God's side. Real concepts. We were in the side of darkness. We were on the side. Our eyes were covered and then we were made alive when he carried us across to his own side. And so, yeah, this idea that there's a neutrality there. There are certain things, like even in the Yembe Church, we use instruments, we sing in a particular way that's very foreign to San Diego or even Mexico. Um, There's other little things that are form-based, but the meaning undergirding these things is completely contrary to their existing worldview 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Brooks, would you say it would be helpful to to explain this to potential missionaries as— uh, something like look at the biblical principles that are uh, at work in a text. Uh, think of it almost like a skeleton that those bones have to be there for Sing, singing hymns and for songs a church to, one to be another. a church. Yeah, yeah, there has to be singing. There has, has to, to be, be a gathering. Yeah. There has to be praying. There has to be a preaching of the gospel. But the flesh on that those bones may look different in different cultures in different parts of the world. You're going to see variety that is acceptable. Absolutely. I think that's that whole form and meaning discussion. Uh, some guys will call it form and function. The the form is going to take on radically different things. And this is one of the critiques that bothers me. The movement methodology guys paint the church guys or the go slow guys. That's my fa- favorite one. Uh, what most of them call right. Oh, you're the guys that like to go slow. Go slow um, guys. Okay. Took I me, like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Shirts made. So, they'll They'll paint us. Well, you guys are the guys that are into like stained glass windows and organs and like pews and like you 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 guys are into those types of things. And it, it couldn't be more opposite. Those are all the forms of something. But the function and our guys sit on flipped over canoes and our elements for communion are coconut milk and sago cakes. And there's just a whole variety of things that are very different, how our guys pray. And when a sermon is delivered, if somebody's starting to go off the rails or they're not teaching something correctly, anyone in the crowd will stand up and they'll say, the canoe's turning, the canoe's turning. Nice. Like they'll yell the guy down. And it, that's very different from what happens in my church at Claremont Emanuel Baptist. But it, it's, it's not this form issue that they like to make it out to be. The function of it is the heart. That's the yes. church mm-hmm. function. And so to get hung up on the forms, I heard, well, you guys are the guys that like to read and carry over tons of books and you're really into seminary education. No, no, no. I just want to make sure what I plant, what I spend 15, 20 years, that it'll be there in the end. If it's not there, then it's all for naught. We just wasted 15 years of our life. Yeah. And so that that's the hope is that these guys hopefully can see the difference <clears throat> form and the function side of it. 
Yeah. Amen. Uh, three things. One, you know, brother, I gave a, a copy of Nine Marks in Spanish to a pastor in the jungle in, in Peru, and he read it, and he immediately started preaching those truths to his people. And when I, when I talked to him about it, he said, it just helped me to see the Bible in a brand new way. He didn't say, oh, that's what the American missionaries are doing, so that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked different in South America than it looks in Alabama or in San Diego. Uh, another thing to mention is that we should not pretend that all cultures are equally uh, bad or good, right? We recognize that some cultures have been mired in the darkness of of animism and, and paganism with very little gospel light, where other cultures, like Western culture, uh, have been uh, greatly influenced by the gospel. Are they perfect? No. You take America, for example. We are uh, children of both uh, Puritans and the Enlightenment. And I would say that the worst parts of Western culture are probably born of the, the Enlightenment and less of the, of the Puritans. But uh, we, we, you know, the, the charge that uh, you know you American missionaries are going out and taking Western culture. Well, part of Western culture is just something that has been formed downstream of the gospel, and we think that that's a very good thing. Mm. Uh, and, and then finally, we would say that uh, to those who critique uh, us on this. We would say you're you're actually taking Western culture out and doing it in mission. You're you know you're taking your Western culture to to the mission field as well, but we think you're actually taking the worst part of Western culture. You know the 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 intolerance of tolerance, the the snooty, you know all the bad stuff. We think you're kind of taking that down down there with you too. At the end of the day, none of us can ultimately transcend our culture. Uh, we just want to make sure that we're. We're squared in, we're zeroed in with Scripture, and we're tr- trying to make sure that we're sifting through that well. Yeah, I, I think that's something that's a learning curve for all missionaries heading overseas. The guys, uh, some of the earliest missionaries sent out after the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin and the guys that he sent out to Brazil, and the adjustments that they had to make. And Hudson Taylor, as he made it to China, and he realized that his dress was an impediment, and he started dressing like the Chinese and these things that were trappings that were things that they brought from their background of growing up in England and the the guys that came from other histor- historic sending countries and the things that they had to give up and understand. Every, every society has its blind spots and every missionary, there's no faultless missionaries in this and we all have to grow in these things. But to lump in those types of things with what we see in scripture as taught about the church and about right. the that's i think where this gets added in it gets glommed on that okay you're talking about first timothy three type elders that's a western thing no 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 that's a biblical Mm -hmm. thing yeah be slow to appoint the elders that's not western yeah and that patience that slowness okay this is why we don't baptize a week after they call themselves believers we see this in scripture be very careful about telling people where they're at and understanding the different ramifications for going slow in different contexts. But the idea that missionaries are going to have blind spots, agree totally. They will. And hopefully they'll grow and they'll mature. But don't lump in the church side. Don't lump in the ecclesiology. Don't lump in the soteriology with the cultural baggage that a lot of missionaries still tend to bring. Amen, brother. We have two more points to cover, brother. You're hanging in there. Thank you so much. So the next characteristic that we want to touch on is the emphasis of obedience over faith, or we might say uh, obedience over conversion. We, mm-hmm. we see this in obedience-based discipleship, uh, this paradigm that views uh, having basically non-Christian people start to learn to outwardly ape the commands of Christ, and then calling them pre-Christians or talking about discipling them to conversion. Yeah. Uh, we went over why this is just a biblically illiterate understanding of conversion. Help us think through how we might correct a missionary on that and what a missionary should be looking at on those issues of obedience and faith. Yeah, like 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 someone who's coming through Radius. Like, What's the vision you would cast for them regarding that? Yeah, I think your biggest takeaway in obedience-based discipleship is to make sure that you, you are looking for a a conversion. You're not looking for a process. That That's probably the biggest weakness in obedience-based discipleship, or, or one of them, that there is a point when people are saved. And this is an incredible thing. And the process idea, guys, 
generally try to minimize that punctiliar point in time where, man, I've moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But it was such a sweet thing to talk to guys and to hear their testimonies and to see, okay, now that I am a child of the king, I do these things out of my love for the king, out of my love for the bridge man who has taken me from Satan's side to God's side. And the radical change in their motivations, not just in the way that they see and understand their salvation, but their motivations for why they do certain things, not wanting to get closer to God through their actions, but because of their love for him, because of how he's treated them as a child of God now that, that I was adopted. I used to be so on the side of the one who takes us to darkness, the one who will take us to the place of fire. And now to see that I'm a child of the king and I, the king has made these roads open for me. My path is clear now. I think those things animate someone, but it has to come back to there's a difference there. And when the time comes, when someone is saved, that is a light to darkness. That is a shattering of other worldviews and in walking into a brand new worldview. I just the pilgrim's progress comes richly to mind when the, the burden is thrown off of Christian's back and things are just radically different from that point forward. Is he still without encumbrances? No, there's still things in his path. He's going to be walking through very difficult parts, but his life is radically different from that point forward. So I think to cast that vision in place of working our way or obeying our way to where Christ loves us or we become a child of God. It's interesting to hear you stress the difference between a process, which obedience-based discipleship very much is a process, and the conversion that is a particular moment in time that takes place when a person is spiritually reborn. Because I'm just hearing you say that, I can think of three or four DMM, CPM authors off the top of my head that explicitly say, we don't want converts, we want disciples. Uh, I find that to be at best, very confusing for Christian for a Christian to hear. Uh, at worst, I think it's just wrong. Yeah, it's a false dichotomy. It's uh, you don't have oh, there's certain categories that are converts and certain categories that are disciples. Disciples are converts, and they're rejoicing converts. They're converts that when somebody's converted, it, it, it is it's a life changing paradigm shifting everything is different in my life type of change and i mean you can't the way people sing the way people pray the way people eat their food the way they hunt in the jungle in new guinea when someone's saved this is totally different and from that point forward they continue to grow and mature but i think to minimize conversion is to minimize the gospel yeah, and 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 conversion is the means by which you become a disciple, right? That's right. that's that's step number one. So you're training missionaries to look for that, the fruit of conversion, not mere obedience. No, I think you preach for conversion, and when someone claims to be converted, when they make these assertions, then you look for the fruit in their life. You rejoice, and you look for the fruit, and you judge. That doesn't mean that we can know someone's heart, but it does mean that we can see their outward actions, and we can affirm them in that. We can help them grow in that. But I think to minimize conversion is really scary because the scriptures make such a big deal of it, whether you're looking at uh, Ephesians 4.1, man, to someone is now a child of God, an explanation point put in that, a move from darkness to light, the way that Paul explains that in Ephesians 4. That, that's just, this is a monumental shift. Yeah. Amen. There's one more thing that I think, brother, uh, we would want to add to, like, you have a, a young missionary. They they love the Lord. They love the nations. Their heart breaks when they think about souls going to suffer in hell. And they go out and, and, and they're implementing these strategies because they really think that they're going to help. And I think we would want to say, uh, you're actually being profoundly unhelpful uh, in a way that you may not even understand because... Uh, obedience rendered to the king uh, that is not born out of love for the king only exasperates his wrath, right? Uh, the, this kind of dead works uh, obedience, this unregenerate obedience, this, uh, yeah, I'll just kind of uh, do what I'm being told to do. It, it, it is not pleasing to the Lord. It only compounds uh, your sinful state. I think about uh, the example that I use is with if me and my wife ever have a fight, which we never do. Mm. But just for instance, if we ever did, 
And uh, she goes to apologize to me and she goes, you know, I just don't want to fight. I'm sorry. Well, that makes me more mad than anything, right? You're just trying to sweep your transgression under the rug and just move on by doing and saying the right things. And that's not going to help anything. And that's also true on the mission field. Just by getting people to do the right things and say the right things, it's not only not going to help anything, it's going to make things way, way worse. Yeah, it is. And I, the problem, I think, with some of this is the speed at which these things are taught, the speed at which the biblical narrative is taught is too fast. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind, we probably the, the lengthiest lesson on Genesis chapter 3 of all the entire teaching from Genesis to Matthew mm. was Genesis chapter 3. And for them to come to grips with their standing before a righteous and holy God, when they understood that lesson, when there was deep, I, I mean, our, our guys were going around going, okay, if this God will not accept offerings, he will no longer accept blood. He wants, he, he wants something from us that we don't have the capability. Can we give him the blood of our dead people? Can we give him the blood of a little bit of our blood, not to death? What will it be to satisfy this God who now is separated from us? I don't, if people don't come under a conviction of this problem that I have, I am separated. I am distinct that when Jesus comes on the scene, there's not a rejoicing uh, the first time that Jesus came on when we were teaching in G, uh, John chapter one and John the Baptist looks over and he sees Jesus walking beside the river Jordan and he goes, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Yembies, I mean, they, they were standing up in the crowd mm. and they're yelling from the top. Is he the one? Is mm. he the one who's going to make things right from all the way back when Adam and Eve broke the command? Is he? And I mean. And to, one of the privileges of my life was to say he is the one. And I mean, mm. they're yelling, Praise talk God. To someone who dunks in water. We don't want to hear about that guy. We want to hear about this one. <laughs> Just that there needs to be a conviction of sin. And I think if you don't get that, then you've got so many other issues. Yeah, that's good, brother. And then, hey, la- last uh, last characteristic here yeah, that we've, we want to We've touch hit on. this kind of along the way already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the most important questions I ask a young guy who wants to be a pastor or someone who says they want to go be a missionary is, what is the church? Uh, I've, I recently had a pastor come to tell me he was going to go plant a church in Florida. We're probably going to talk about, you know, can, can we support him financially? And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the gospel and all that stuff, but you say you're going to be a church planner. Okay, tell me what is a church? And uh, that's not just a local issue, right? These missionaries, they're going to the field and they, they they're, hopefully their goal is to see churches planted, and it, not all, it isn't always that, but if that's their goal, they don't even know what it is. And, and that is exasperated uh, to the nth degree by DMM stuff, right? It's, it's, there's no emphasis on the local church. There's no definition of the local church. Or, or where there is one, or, yeah. it's, it's vastly insufficient compared to what the, the New Testament prescribes for church polity. That's right. So, so brother, uh, again, so the, the people that you're training in, in Radius, uh, how do you cast a vision for them of the local church, what it is, what its significance is for missions and, and all that? Well, we'll use a lot of the same materials that you guys are talking about. We get free from Nine Marks, Banner of Truth, Ligonier, Desiring God. But the, the Nine Marks stuff and the Banner of Truth stuff, diving into the ecclesiology, uh, what is, and then maybe more important, what isn't a church. Yeah. And we that the missionaries that come out, when not only the academic understanding, but as they come out of the radius that I'm most proud of, they love their local church more. They dive into their local church because I think it's not only understanding it conceptually, but sitting in and understanding their local church, taking some of their elders out for a meal, sitting in on some of the different meetings. Hopefully they do uh, some of the pastoral review sessions where they talk through messages and they talk through how things came out well and just understanding the nuts and bolts of it. Because if you don't understand it, like you guys have heard this analogy when they teach the guys from the Secret Service to identify uh, foreign currencies, they never teach them the foreign currencies. They teach them the authentic item. And if they know the authentic item well enough, they can identify it. If, if students heading overseas, if potential missionaries know what the local church is, they'll have an inborn immunity when the veteran says, Junior, this is how it's done over here. 
mm, it just it rings hollow to what I know and what I've experienced in yeah. my local church home. And so I think it's understanding it, but then it's also practicing it, getting in a good local church that loves expositional preaching, that has meaningful membership, that exercises church discipline. That's a rare thing today. And to, to know what a local church is before they go overseas, it's just, it's almost like, yeah, going overseas as a Marine and not understanding how a grenade works or a gun works. Like you just, this is the tools of your trade, my friend. You need to know this really well. Yeah, brother. Praise Amen. God, brother. Yeah. So just to wrap up, I just want to put a, a final note on this that I think is is helpful. You, you mentioned J.I. Packer's book, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. A, a simple thesis from that book that I think everyone who plans to be a missionary needs to recognize. And, and I think just as important, the churches that are supporting missionaries need to recognize is that we measure our success in evangelism and in missions, not by numbers, but by our faithfulness. And I, I think that gets to the heart of so much of what is wrong in these paradigms. And, and just by, by fixing our expectations on that, on faithfulness to God uh, and just being grateful for what fruit he gives us, uh, a lot of this can be cleared up. Yeah. Uh, hey, Brooks, can you give us and therefore our listeners, and I think our, our social media person will cut this and make it its own clip. Can you give uh, our listeners... Uh, your best sell on why they should care about this, because this has been one of our least viewed series <laughs> of our many, uh, you know, uh, unviewed series. But this has been one of the least viewed, uh, and I think it's just because it seems so foreign, it seems so niche, seems so ethereal that people just feel like ah, it's not that big of a deal. So, can you give us your best like thirty second pitch? Why should you care about DMM multiplying movement stuff and and having a better vision than that? Yeah, I think missionaries, pastors, missions pastors should care about movement methodologies, potential members or being endorsed by their churches because Christians care about the Great Commission. We care about where the gospel goes. We care about seeing the gospel move out to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And the worst thing that could happen, the thing that we are very nervous about is that if we go overseas and we don't end up planting true churches and we don't see true converts, we'll have inevitably not fulfilled the Great Commission, but we'll have done something that maybe is counterproductive to that. That's the worry in movement methodologies is that are we getting the authentic item? People who care about the Great Commission care about movement methodologies because you got to know these things and you have to be up to speed on them if you're going to be fruitful in the Great Commission. So that's why I think people should care about this. Amen. Thanks, brother. Seems like a good place to end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Last last thing, where can people who are curious about Radius find more information on your school, Brooks? Yeah, go to radiusinternational.org. Uh, we have visit days. Uh, one of them is coming up in February. Another one will be coming up in October. Uh, those are pretty well filled up fast. I think February is pretty close to full now. Uh, but then we also have an annual conference. This one will be at Kevin DeYoung's church. Alistair Begg will be speaking at it, as will Ian Hamilton from Banner of Truth. Uh, we'll be talking about current methodological issues and movement methodologies will be part of that. Because, again, it is the big raging bull in the room. Everything else is small compared to this issue. So, yeah, the 30th at uh, Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. So that's another way to get a hold of us. But RadiusInternational.org is the best. Awesome. Well, brother, we can't thank you enough for your time uh, and, and making this out of your busy schedule, being able to come here and talk to us about missions. So thank you again. And thanks to our listeners. Yep. Signing, Signing off. off.